everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. I'm Melanie Cogdell, Managing Editor of the Christian Research Journal. It's May 2019, and you're listening to Episode 125, The Theological Legacy of Rachel Held Evans. On this episode, I'm joined by Ann Kennedy, who has an MDiv from Virginia Theological Seminary, and she is a blogger and a writer and the author of Nailed It, 365 Sarcastic Devotions for Angry and Worn Out People. Ann has written an online exclusive feature article for the journal, and it's called The Theological Legacy of Rachel Held Evans, and it's available to read free online at our website, equip.org. Ann, it's good to have you on. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, our listeners might know if they've been following religious news that sadly, earlier this month on May 5th, Rachel Held Evans passed away suddenly. I think she had some complications from the flu. And we just, first of all, I want to say a few things. One is we extend our most deepest sympathies and heartfelt condolences to her husband. And she also has two young children and her family. And also, I want to say that for more than 40 years, the Christian Research Journal has been known for a hallmark of just really having dispassionate ways that we evaluate teachers both within the Christian church and without it. And so as we approach the teaching that we'll be talking today of Rachel Held Evans, I think we continue on in that tradition. We have never approached it in any kind of mean-spirited or snarky type of way whenever we've dealt with anybody's teachings. And so I think we're really known for that. And so I just wanted to have that preface because we do want to talk about Rachel because of her death. A lot of her teachings and her books have been in the news and people have been asking us questions about her teaching and how does it measure up to scriptural truth. And so we just wanted to have this conversation just kind of about her theological legacy and what she did in fact teach. So can you tell us a little bit more about Rachel Held Evans? Because some people who are not in evangelical Christian circles might not know her name as well as others. Yes, I came to hear about her a few years ago, probably around 2014, 2015, when somebody alerted me to her name and asked me to read a book of hers. So I, the first book I read was her, A Year of Biblical Womanhood. And I was really compelled by her. She's a, she's a fantastic writer, really funny, bright, smart. And I was uh, interested in her writing because it sounded like she had a very similar kind of uh, faith life. Well, not life, but, um, I grew up in sort of half Anglican, half evangelical circles as a missionary kid. And I sat under a lot of sort of, you know, evangelical preaching. And so it was really interesting for me to read about her experience in the church and what that was like. And I think it was very similar. And she articulated it really well. But by 2000. 15, she was beginning to be disenfranchised with her evangelical church. She never named a church that I could find a particular kind of church that she went to, but it sounded sort of, you know, Baptist or Southern Baptist, non-denominational. And I think that was towards the end of her questioning. She probably really began to question her faith in the 90s and early 2000s. 
And she journaled that online in blogs. And then she wrote four books. And I think a fifth is about to be released that she had been working on right at her death. So she's a really interesting story and a really bright communicator. And so, of course, she had a quite a large following and people found themselves able to identify with where she had come from and where she felt like she was going. So I, of course, as I read her stuff back in 2014, 2015, I saw that there were some real problems, exegetical problems, hermeneutical problems with the way she was dealing with the scripture. But she did it so well that it was uh, it was fun. She's a fun person to read. So, of course, it was as I've worked on this piece, just been really um, very sad about her untimely death and um, sad that we're thinking about her writing in this context. Well, one thing that I didn't mention about her untimely death is that she was only 37. So most of us would consider that to be quite young. And she had two children under five. I think her youngest is just over one years old. So what is she known for? Like, in other words, there are a lot of writers out there and there are a lot of writers that have had, you know, questions about their faith. But why did she just see such an explosion of her influence and just people just really wanting to know more about her? So I know you said she wrote one book that you read, but what else did she write? And why did she become so well-known and almost infamous? So her first book, I think, was called... um Oh gosh, the first word of it is is leaving me. Um, something in Monkey Town, surviving in Monkey Town. Oh gosh, I just evolving in Monkey Town, <laughs> evolving in Monkey Town. Yeah, I think it's because right. that refers so, to the Christian college that she went to. Yes, she grew up in the town where the infamous trial was about evolution and what should be taught in the schools. And as she explored that as a young person, that was the first thing that began to sort of undo her childhood faith. And then the second thing in an interview online that I listened to, she talked about how America's involvement in the war in Afghanistan and Iraq and the question of evil and why would God send some people to hell and not others really undid her. She just did not find compelling answers to those particular questions and the church didn't satisfy her. And so those were the beginnings of her questionings, which I think are those are troubling issues for so many people who have grown up in the church and have not really felt satisfied with what the church had to say. And then also she really, I think, began to have prominence in the early 2000s because she offered some very true and good critiques of celebrity pastoring, um, the sort of mega church movement, the what people are calling now the evangelical industrial complex. I think she had some very prescient and true critiques about that. And because she was such a compelling writer and she was talking about the things that people really did want answers to and not just sort of trite answers, but really satisfying answers. She began to try to answer those questions for herself. And as she did that, people came along with her and really began to listen to her. So over time, the difference between her and sort of classical church teaching was obvious, but not to sort of people wandering around on the internet. So I think she took people along with her on her sort of 
theological journey. And I don't know that she knew where she was going. Um, And certainly people without a lot of discernment went with her and followed her down, eventually down the path towards affirming the LGBTQ heresy that is so prominent in the church today. I can't remember what the original question was. <laughs> what What is she known for? Well, and also what else she wrote. I mean, I know, you know, one thing about her book about living with biblical womanhood where she was doing is I think at the time there was another New York Times writer who had done something similar, A.J. Jacobs, and he had done and we have reviewed some of his work in our journal. So he had done that the year of living biblically is what I think he called it. And, you know, he took Uh, out his little stool. Uh, He didn't cut his beard. And I think he would say he's agnostic, but he's from a Jewish ethnic background. And so he was trying to keep all these Levitical laws and so forth. And so that became like a New York Times bestseller. And then the only thing that kind of registered with me at the time was, oh, there was some girl out there and she's doing the exact same thing, but just trying to keep all the commands as they relate to women. So I didn't exactly read her book. And I don't know at the time if I even thought she was a Christian, I thought she might just be another journalist in the style of AJ Jacobs kind of making this experiment. But I know that, you know, that's kind of where she came on the scene, I think, because perhaps her book sounded similar to his. She got a lot of media coverage. And so that kind of you know, put her into, you know, the blogosphere and interviews and those kinds of things. But she did write some other books. So in addition to that book, what else did she write? She wrote the next one after Biblical Woman Who Was Searching for Sunday. And that chronicled more carefully her exit from her evangelical church into the Episcopal Church. And she kind of organized it around the sacraments of she said the seven sacraments. So marriage and the Lord's Supper and all those kinds of things. And then the last book was called Inspired. And that was about the Bible. She sort of tried to take a more creative look at some of the different biblical genres, um, poetry, history, apocalypse, and do what many people on the left do, which is they say they want to take the text seriously but then not literally. And so that was kind of a refrain with her, both in the year of biblical womanhood and the book on the Bible. And so it's interesting because she would say she wants to take the text and let it be for itself what it is. But while she's doing that, she does not use the ways that Christians read the text to make sense of it, the tools that God gives in the text itself, she lays those aside and refuses to use them. So I had a hard time with the year of biblical womanhood. I I both was, it was so compelling and interesting to read on one hand. And on the other hand, I was really unhappy with the way she used the text. She would read the text in order to mock it, to make fun of it, to show that it was absurd. And as a Christian, a true believing Christian, that was tough for me to swallow chapter after chapter, even when it was funny and well articulated. The next book that's coming out, I can't remember what that one's called. Yeah, but it's, got a, I think a posthumous book that they're going to put out of her writing. Now, I know mm-hmm. that some of these new various different religious personalities, a bunch of them women, they're always organizing various different teaching conferences and so forth. So I wasn't familiar before she died with some of the conferences that she was organizing, but why don't you tell us a little bit about 
some of the conferences that she was organizing and who she was, you know, having speak at them and, you know, what they were going to be about. I think the first one that she, I think it was pretty well attended was um, Why Christian? And I think it went a couple of years and uh, she really brought other famous voices along with her in that conference. And then the more latest one has been of the Evolving Faith Conference. I think it maybe has met twice. And I think her second baby was born right before that conference last year. So she connected with people like Jen Hatmaker in those kinds of, in those two venues and um, Nadia Bolz Weber. And those were smaller. Well, I'm not sure about the Why Christian, but the Evolving Faith Conference was supposed to be a, a way for people who were leaving the evangelical church to find each other and, you know, make sense of their faith apart from historical Christianity and read the Bible in a, you know, a way that was easier for them. And I think they were very well attended from what I hear. I think that, that they sold out pretty quickly, at least the second one, the Evolving Faith Conference. So I think those will go on. <laughs> that one is not going to go away. I think they really hit a market niche for that. And um, it seems like it's a thriving enterprise. <laughs> Maybe not as big as some of the big evangelical ones. I've never gone to any conference like this, but the, you know, where you are in a, uh, but the, is it the belong to her things like that? I don't think that she's involved with those kinds of conferences so much. It was these smaller, more intellectual on the left kind of endeavors. You're listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast from the Christian Research Institute and the Christian Research Journal. Today's guest is Ann Kennedy, and she has written an online exclusive feature article for the Christian Research Journal, and it's called The Theological Legacy of Rachel Held Evans. I'd like to take this time to have a little bit of heart to heart with all of our listeners. You know, the journal is facing some adaptive challenges that most print publications, maybe some of your favorite ones, have been reduced in size or come out less frequently. And it's a situation that many print publications are facing during, you know, the current time of technological turbulence. And that really is causing um, new ways that we need to sustain subscription in basically a digital content-driven marketplace. So I'd really like you to consider joining the team of print journal subscribers because it's those paid subscriptions that help make content like this episode of the Postmodern Realities podcast free. And we have many online exclusive articles and film reviews that are completely free online at our website, equip.org. And it's a place where people literally go to from all over the world as they seek to see what the Bible has to say about many questions and answers that they need, whether it's listening to this podcast or Hank Hanegraaff's Hank Unplugged podcast, our daily broadcast that Hank Hanegraaff, our president, hosts called The Bible Answer Man, which is also streamed on our website or literally many hundreds and hundreds of articles that we have free online at our website, people are using equip.org and it's making a difference in equipping and discipling Christians worldwide. And the thing is, is our website is not under a paywall. It's completely free. So would you please consider, if you haven't already, subscribing to the journal. A subscription is $33.50 
and you can subscribe by going to equip.org. Now, maybe you're already a subscriber, and if you are, please consider buying a gift subscription for someone or even passing this along. If you're on social media, you can mention this podcast and share it with your followers or on your Facebook page or on Twitter and other spaces that you're in online so other people can discover this content. Well, we were just talking a few moments ago about the conferences that she organized, and you mentioned that she had connected to Jen Hatmaker and Nadia Boltz-Weber, and I just wanted to let our listeners know, in case they missed it, we had a recent episode of the Postmodern Realities podcast where I interviewed Dr. Doug Groteis, who wrote a review, which is free online at our website, equip.org, about Nadia Boltz's very provocative and controversial book, Shameless, about sexuality. So you might want to read that and listen to that episode. And also to encourage you to subscribe to the journal if you don't already, because we will be publishing an article by Anne on the teaching of Jen Hatmaker, because she is so popular and of course, if you're on Facebook and have a lot of Christian women friends, you're going to see a lot of her posts reposted in your stream. You were talking a little bit earlier about different influences she had and the fact that she decided to leave the evangelical Christian church. But what is her training? Like, so is she just a blogger? Because so many people this happened to where people are looking to her as a religious authority. Does she have any kind of formal training in which she frames her various critiques of evangelical Christianity. She was a lay woman. Then, you know, she came into the Episcopal Church. Um, she went to a small Christian college where her father was on faculty in Tennessee. I think she was an English literature major, which I support wholeheartedly. I was one myself. And she um, was just interested in the church and in faith. And so began to write about her doubts and her questions. And I think that the thing that I find most heartbreaking is that she claims, and I I would really love to know to what extent this was really her experience or as if it was her perceived experience or, you know, a lot of us feel like we're not getting what we need, but people are saying out loud what the truth is and we just can't perceive it. She says that her questions were just not acceptable to the church structures that she was in. She uh, was often told that she was too questioning, that she just needed to listen and obey and that, you know, it's, it shouldn't be a problem. And I have never experienced that in the church myself. So it's hard for me to imagine that people would tell her not to question or not to be curious but I'm sure that that does happen and it did happen to her to one degree or another. But for me, I think the thing that is so alarming is probably the failures of preaching. She sat in a congregation, you know, in rural America and Tennessee for her whole life and heard preaching and apparently, well, did not hear the gospel in a way that she could understand and perceive it. And I know that that's true. Christians are very anxious about behavior. You know, they want, the pastor often wants everybody to behave themselves, to act as a Christian, to have a good witness, and maybe is heavy on the law and does not keep articulating the grace of God and the gospel over and over and over again. And I certainly experienced preaching like that growing up. 
So I can see how she would have been dissatisfied, especially if she did not understand the relationship between the law and the gospel and between the grace of Jesus and his judgment for sin. So I think she probably really struggled and then she played that out online. And so people who were also struggling with faith and weren't getting answers and didn't hear the gospel easily found a refuge in her. Yeah, that does make me really sad as well, because, you know, I'm a woman in a conservative evangelical Protestant tradition. And, but in my tradition, in the Reformed Presbyterian tradition, it is very cerebral. And so there is a lot of encouragement for knowing the person of God and also understanding theology. And I do hear that from other women um, in evangelical circles that they have not had spaces where they can ask questions. And by nature, my personality, I just ask a ton of questions. I'm always asking a lot of questions, no matter what the topic is. And so I am sad about that, that she wasn't able to find those folks who could answer because there are so many right minds in the Christian tradition in general that have all kinds of very cogent and biblical and sound and gospel-centered answers. So I'm sad as well with you. But I think one of the things that you were mentioning at the beginning of this podcast is as you've read more of her material, you were more troubled by her view of scripture. Can you pack that for us? How did she look at scripture? How did she read the Bible? Now you did say a lot of times, you know, her commentary was sarcastic, but how did she approach the Bible? So I think she approached the Bible in the way that many people on the left, I mean, would say this is sort of the run of the mill Episcopal church way of reading the Bible, which I also am very familiar with. And that is that the text is very interesting, but first of all, you are not sure about anything. So you don't go in with a clear picture of who Christ is. You discount immediately the possibility of miracles. The burden is on God and the text to convince you. If there can be a miracle, it's got to be proved. And since you didn't see it with your own eyes, it's very likely that it didn't happen. So you come in very skeptical against the text. And then you hope that it will sort of speak to you in a, you know, very experiential way. So this is very ordinary now. We're hearing this inside and out of the church. But love, you can understand and know love. And so that is the paradigm that you read back over the text and you let that sort of emerge out of various stories. But there's no deeper theme or no deeper understanding that the text would be about God, would point to God, would be written by God, you know, or superintended by the Holy Spirit. So you're going to come out with some vague senses, a lot of curious questions, very wondering, you're wondering a lot. But if anybody suggests that maybe they do know the answer, the definitive answer to a question, you can know that that's not true. So she uses the term I thought was really helpful that she articulated it this way, that the Bible is a cacophony of voices. The Bible canonizes contradiction. You can't know definitively one way or another, but 
it will help you in your life if you find it helpful. So you're kind of the measure and the judge. So that's the prevailing way that people in our culture read the Bible anyway now. And she articulated that really well. I think she helped people. I think she helped articulate that view as a very good communicator. That's not the way that Christians should approach the Bible. The Bible is about Jesus. He can be known. God is a good communicator. He has the power to communicate with human people whom he created. He can use human speech and be known. And the Bible is a coherent book, text, full of not just information, but pictures of who God is and what he wants from his creatures. Uh, so I, it's hard. I think you should approach the text with a lot of respect for it and a desire to know what it means and a willingness to submit, even if you don't like it. But that's hard for the modern person, I think, to, to say, <laughs> I'm going to do what it says, even if it violates my you know, experience of reality or what I really hold dear. Nobody wants to hear that anymore. So she had the right message at exactly the right time for this culture. So what was her view of Jesus? If she saw the Bible as just this cacophony of voices and maybe nothing cohesive throughout the text, did she just approach him as he was God? What is her view of who Christ was and what the gospel actually is? I don't know if she really would say that Jesus was God. I didn't hear her ever say that he wasn't. I think that she would have said that he's a very good man uh, and that we should be like him. We should copy him. She seemed to believe in the historical, you know, that Jesus was a person in history and that he did die. She did not absolutely deny the resurrection in her latest book. She kind of wondered, she wished that it could be true, hoped that it was so, but she didn't sort of say one way or another whether she really believed in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. She did talk a lot about love, that Jesus was a loving person who overturned the Old Testament law, and we should be like him, and that he was killed because he was too loving. So she did not have really a good sense of sin, that Jesus came for a particular reason, not to overturn the law, but to fulfill it and keep the law where human people were unable to keep the law. She did not have a sort of coherent Christology. She like so many, she liked the stories of, um, you know, his teaching about love and being good and not returning evil for evil. The most interesting part in her latest book, the one called Inspired, uh, that I found was fascinating, uh, a fascinating glimpse into her was she tried to deal with the question of Peter walking on the water. And she told the story two different ways. It was a pastor named Peter who was one of, on one of those Galilean boat trips. And uh, he sees somebody walking on the water. He gets out of the boat and walks towards him. And she kind of wanders around trying to figure out how it would be possible for that to happen. But in both of the scenarios that she works out, he swims to shore and then just knows that Jesus has been there, but without actually ever seeing him. So I thought that was really interesting. She wanted it to be true, but she couldn't, you know, she couldn't quite get there. 
so the idea that Jesus was God and he could do whatever he want and that he was sovereign over the weather, even she wasn't able to get on board with that, which grieved me. But <laughs> Earlier in the podcast, you talked about how Rachel Held Evans had really been someone who was promoting a specific view regarding LGBTQ identifying folks and especially those in faith communities who were struggling with their sexuality and their faith. And so can you unpack that a little bit more for us? I mean, she seems to have found an affinity very much as I've seen online, as I've seen, especially conversations on Twitter, memorializing just her specific impact in that space, in that community. I think she was one of the first ones of the evangelical voices to be outspoken on behalf of that message. I think it was an easy thing for her to get to that pretty early on. And I don't think she had any theological dissonance about it at all, because I think by the time she got there, she had jettisoned most of, you know, Orthodox faith and was reading the Bible the way that she wanted to. The, it kind of precipitated, became a crisis for her when, um, I can't remember what years this was, but when World Vision made a policy that they were going to accept LGBT people to work for them. And then within 24 hours, they had reversed that decision because of the hue and cry. That upset her very much. And so she kind of came out strongly at that point. And the Why Christian Conference, I think, came out of that. So by that point, she had felt very strongly that she should be able to be an evangelical and be pro-LGBT relationships, you know, unrepentant, and that that should be the evangelical church was moving that direction. And when it didn't go all the way, she was very discouraged. And that's when she finally left and joined the Episcopal Church, probably in 2015. So I don't, theologically, I don't think she ever had a problem with it, but she was very outspoken. And so it was very easy for people like Jen Hatmaker eventually to follow her without a good theological argument for it, because by then the scripture was already sort of this malleable guidebook that doesn't definitively speak about anything. So it doesn't really matter. You know, love is the defining principle by which you read the Bible. And since we know that LGBT people love, then we know that God doesn't have any problem with their lifestyle. That's the trajectory. Why was Rachel Held Evans so popular specifically among evangelical Christians? And what do you think about that popularity? I mean, does it indicate anything specifically about the state of the evangelical Christian church? I think she made inroads where, you know, other, you know, I mean, the Episcopal Church has been saying most of this for quite a long time and has been in crisis, you know, for two decades now or longer, really, 50 years. I think she had such inroads in evangelicalism because she spoke that language. She was from the Bible Belt and she knows her way around the Bible. She can cite scripture very easily. She can talk the language of the Bible and everyday speech in a fluid and easy way. And so she was kind of the bridge for people who had been living in that world without discernment and without 
real comfort, you know, without a theological basis to keep living there. And as the culture shifted, she was just there at the right time. She spoke that language and she gave people the language that they needed to say what <laughs> what's being said on TV or <laughs> it's everywhere. It's interesting to me that she was so frustrated that the evangelical world did not immediately follow her. I think that they were following her slowly and she didn't really see it. And so she left and joined the Episcopal Church. But you can tell from the response on social media and the grief that evangelicals who will never be Episcopalian had gone with her and were finding comfort in her message. So she was there at the right time. Uh, And, you know, most the emergent church of the last period said a lot of this stuff, but they were not the mainstream, you know, and they didn't talk in a sort of an easy, fluid blogging way that let people understand what it was that they were talking about. So is there some positive things that you can say about the ministry that she had while she was alive? What did she specifically offer to Christians? I think, you know, it's not a bad thing when people return back to the questions of faith and try to re-examine what it is that they thought that they knew. Every person should do this. If you grow up in the church, you should carefully examine the faith that you're given and you should try to understand it. It shouldn't just be this passive thing that you're handed and then it doesn't matter. I like that she was willing to wrestle. I like that she was provocative. She, um, I'm not at all offended that she was asking difficult questions or that she wanted answers that weren't easy or weren't pat. I think the question of hell is a really, really critical one. The question of evolution of sexual relationships. These are vital. They all speak to the nature of God and the nature of humanity, and they have to be talked about. So I think she has forced evangelicals to really stop and say, what is the church? What do we believe? Does this really matter? How should we read the Bible? And for people who are encountering her for the first time, I would just plead that they pause and think about the implications of how she's reading the Bible. What is her theology? Where will it lead you if you go the whole direction that she's going? Don't just take her word for it any more than she didn't take anybody else's word for it. Everybody should carefully examine what it is that they believe. And, you know, I think her critiques about the the church as a machine, as a, a sort of a thing that rolls along and rolls you over. That's not those that was true. We're to care for one another. We're to obey small churches that really preach the gospel, I think are very, very good. And they are not celebrated in this culture at all, where everything should be big and wonderful. So I think a lot of the questions that she asked were fair and good. I don't think she came to the right answers on most of them. But I'm glad that she asked them. And for all the people, you know, I think her book got to be on the New York Times bestseller list after her death. For all the people who picked it up and wanted to know about the Bible, I just pray that they then go to the text 
and that Christians who believe in it will be quick to stand up and say, wait, you know, I, I know the answer to that question. Um, and it's not a pad answer. And I've thought about it and God can really be known. So in that sense, I'm a little bit hopeful. And I, um, I pray for all the people who are mourning her that they'll actually go back to the text and that they'll actually encounter Jesus as he really is in it. Well, before she wrote these books, she was blogging. And I think just because of where we are, you know, at this point in history with the internet and just all the tools that are available to the average person that weren't available to have this reach that only like a few published authors could have, there's just this proliferation of blogs. Just the average person can just start blogging and having a following. So because that's kind of what her roots were, what's the effect do you think of blogging both within and without of the church? I think this is a really interesting question, and this is central to the whole thing. Part of the reason that we are having a crisis anywhere is because the internet broke open everything. And it's true. Anyone with or without training can get online and start a blog. And so discernment well, now that's an industry. You can have a discernment industry, really, that tries to tell you what you should read and what you shouldn't. But it's interesting that we began to have the blogosphere at the point where I think that Christian teaching was sort of on an all-time low. It wasn't really very rigorous. The moral therapeutic deism was really the main thing by the time the blogosphere got going. And so it was really, and and I think there was a sense of people being starving, especially women. If you go to church every Sunday and hear what it's like to be a biblical woman, you know, and how long your skirt should be, and you're not hearing about the Trinity and the patristics and all the things that you should know about as a Christian that are in the Bible and in church history, it it got more and more shallow in the church. And so starving people got online and started blogging themselves. And if you're a good writer, you can get a following. So I myself have been blogging for almost 13 years. I was a mommy blogger in the beginning, and then I gave that up and blogged about theology. And, you know, if you have an opinion about something, you can say it. Well, the church has no real way to deal with that. I think that in this next decade, the church should figure out how to equip and train people to communicate the gospel, whoever they are, even on the Internet, and have some way of helping Um, I don't know if it should be a formal way, but a way of helping people discern who it is that they're reading and what it is that they're doing. So when Jen Hatmaker made her declaration that she was pro-LGBT, Tish Harrison Warren wrote a really great piece about the crisis in the blogosphere. And she thinks that the church should have a way of sort of equipping and blessing people a more formal way to do that and should have more interest in the internet than it does. And I don't know, I think every denomination would have to figure that out for itself, but it's a really difficult question and we are not equipped. We don't want to do the hard work, I think, of really knowing and being willing to suffer for the faith, for a true knowledge of Jesus in the Bible. And so the hunger is being met everywhere. Just eating it up. And she was the first iteration of that. Well, I think one thing she definitely did do was 
connect with people like herself who are questioning their faith, just like they grew up in church and they felt like you said she didn't get answers to some difficult questions that they had. And so she was questioning. And so, you know, at the Christian Research Journal, we've covered this question because people are wondering about that. And I want to tell our listeners if they've missed it before, we have a great article about this subject of doubt and it's online free at our website. It's called Doubt as Virtue, How to Doubt and Have Faith Without Exploding by Travis Dickinson. So you can look that one up. But, you know, I think it's fair. We've talked about we should ask questions of our faith. And the Christian faith is sound. It answers very complex questions that some people think it doesn't answer. And so what's the use of doubt and questioning in the Christian life? And are there any boundaries to that? I think questioning is key. You know, if you don't question, if you don't ask, If you don't go to God and cry out with the very difficult and painful things that you encounter intellectually and spiritually and physically and emotionally, then you, your faith isn't probably real. The whole point of the Christian life is to wrestle and suffer and try to understand. I like the Rachel Held Evans used this image a couple of times that Jacob wrestling with the angel and then not letting go on one hand until he received a blessing, but also becoming sort of lame in the process. He sustains an injury to himself as a result of that. And I think that we as Westerners are afraid of discomfort. And so it is very uncomfortable to face something as dark as the reality of hell and be willing to really find the answer to that question. But we ought to, we have to, otherwise it's, you know, we're we're not serious about it. So I think, you know, she offered a refuge in doubt and that's not a refuge. A refuge is the answer, but you have to go through the valley of the shadow to find that answer. You have to face your mortality and your sin and the trouble of this life. And you have to accept Maybe an answer that feels very wrong, which again, we're not equipped to do because our feelings are the measure of everything. So I would absolutely agree that doubting and questioning is central, but it has to be real. It can't be mouthed, you know, like you ask the question, but you don't really want to know. And I think that that's kind of where Rachel ended up is that she asked the questions But then when the answer was given, she found those unacceptable. And so she just continued to ask the question over and over again, being unwilling to accept the answer. And that's not really true questioning. That's not true doubt. That's false doubt, if that's possible to say. And I grieve over that a lot. I think people should come into the church, come and consider what's there. And then if you don't like it, you walk away, but you with intellectual honesty, really grapple with the answer. And of course, that means that people inside the church need to know the answer themselves and be willing to say it out loud. And I think Christians even are afraid of the answers that are given in scripture. So some courage is incumbent on us. But yeah, no, you have to doubt. And it's not the end of the world. It's the beginning of life if you finally ask the questions about who God is and what he's saying. 
Well, finally, I want to end with some fun rapid fire questions for Anne. So, Anne, it's May. Which of these vegetables that are in season do you prefer? Asparagus or zucchini? Oh, zucchini. It's almost summer, so would you prefer a vacation away or do you like to be at home and have a staycation? Oh, I have to go away <laughs> for a long time. No, <laughs> just a few days. Are you an early bird or are you a night owl? I am no longer either. I go to bed at eight o'clock and I can still sleep until 10. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Are you an introvert or extrovert? I used to be an extrovert, but then I had six children, and so now I'm an introvert. That is also amazing. Wow, that's, <laughs> I can't imagine. I have friends with lots of kids. Even one of my friends just had her eighth. So I always am amazed at people, moms, who can handle all of that. Well, thanks, Anne, mm -hmm. for being a guest on the Postmodern Realities Podcast. Thank you. This was so fun. Today's guest is Anne Kennedy, and she has written an online exclusive feature article for the Christian Research Journal, and it's called The Theological Legacy of Rachel Held Evans. And we'd like to invite you to subscribe to our journal again. The print subscription is $33.50. To subscribe, please visit our website, equip.org. We'd like to hear from you, so connect with us on social media. Like the Bible Answer Man Facebook page and follow CRI. Christian Research Journal, Hank Hanegraaff, and The Bible Answer Man on Twitter. And please subscribe to The Bible Answer Man channel on YouTube. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the Postmodern Realities podcast on iTunes, and please rate and review our podcast. When you rate and review our podcast, it helps others see our content. And please share this episode on your social media accounts. Be sure you tune in daily to the Bible Answer Man broadcast hosted by CRI President Hank Hanegraaff, who answers your questions live on air. To ask Hank a question, call 888-ASK-HANK, Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. In addition, head to iTunes and subscribe to Hank Unplugged, Hank's audio podcast. Follow Hank off the grid, where he has in-depth conversations with some of the brightest minds discussing topics you care about. So until our next Christian Research Journal author conversation, thanks for listening to the Postmodern Realities Podcast. Mm -hmm.